0: Wisdom. <laughs> it's probably not a one of you in this room that doesn't say, "Gee, I wouldn't like to be wise." Uh, most of us want it. Most of us yearn for it. So we're going to talk about it all summer long. I want to mention uh, we're going to be—we have a reading plan. Encourage you to be reading the scriptures for yourself on your own. and Maybe you're new to that. Uh, there's a journal out in the foyer. Go out to the right. You'll find it. Or there's just um, a, a sheet there with the verses that we encourage you to read. We're going to be looking through and working through the book of Proverbs. It's all we're going to be reading and studying and looking at all summer long. Just kind of working through that book. Here's why we're doing it. Here's why. One of the things that I find true of my life, and I think if I want to ask a couple questions, I think you'll probably find true of your life too, is ask the question, are you satisfied with your life? I mean, right now, present day, currently, if nothing else changes, if nothing else happens, if you never get to the next dream accomplished or the next hill that's taken, are you satisfied with where you're at today? Are you truly happy? I mean, truly, significantly, there's joy deep in your bones. I mean, you are happy. Uh, you maybe, ha- you could say, I have absolute clarity on why I live and the purpose of my life. Um, you are living well. Might be saying, I am just, I am stroking it on all cylinders and I am really living well. As you consider questions like that, I find that most people would say, you know what? Uh, maybe in some areas, but in others, whew. I could really use some, or, eh. The book of Proverbs is given to us to help us live well. I mean, live well, be satisfied, uh, to be uh, healthy in our relationships with one another. To be healthy in our relationships with finances and money and, and just with our bosses and our employers and our, just to live well. It's a book is good so we can live successfully and live well. And so what we're going to do is we're going to work through that this summer and kind of push in on how to practically live and live well. To do that, if you turn with me um, to, uh, I'm sorry, I'm a slide ahead. Turn with me uh, to Proverbs, we'll get there in a minute, um, Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. It's page 525. For those of you who maybe don't have a Bible, grab one of the Bibles there in the seat in front of you. Proverbs chapter 1. want going to give a kind of quick intro to the book of Proverbs. It's very quick. And then we want to jump headlong into it. Again, not going to give a deep, thorough introduction. If you're really studying this book, I'd encourage you to dive a little deeper to the background of this book. But here's kind of what it is. The first thing, a proverb. Maybe some of you have heard the term, a Chinese proverb, or you know, Benjamin Franklin, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise, and, you know, all those. That's a proverb. It's a short, pithy statement, sometimes a story, uh, that has a timeless truth in it. So, in other words, it's a truth that holds true across all times and all generations, So it's not just something that works for today, 2015, but it's something that would have worked 400 years ago, 600 years ago, all time. Uh, Proverbs have in them information on how to practically live and practically live well. They are not theory. You know, I like to theorize and be up in the clouds. This springs down and puts feet and shoe leather to those theories and how to practically um, live. Now, in the book of Proverbs, there's about 900 of these short, pithy statements. Now, we are not going to hit all 900 of them. I promise you, it would be a very long summer if we were going to try and do that. What we're going to try and do is pull a lot of them into categories. So, for example, there's a lot to talk about friendship. So, we're going to do a whole week on what the Proverbs talk about friendships. Now, there's a lot to talk about anger. So, we're going to talk about anger in one week. There's a lot to talk about leadership. There's a, so, we're gonna, that's how we're going to kind of tackle this. Now, the next thing you want to know is these the Proverbs are general truths, not divine promises. For example, here's the verse I slipped up in a slide a little earlier. Proverbs 16, 7. When people's lives please the Lord, even their enemies are at peace with them. Now, you read that and you listen to what was preached last week and you're like, no, wait a minute. Or you consider the life of Jesus. And to those of you who know Jesus' life, would you say he was at peace with his enemies? No. They hung him on a cross. I mean, he had some sharp words and they went out. So here's what I want to just stress. A lot of us have this tendency to read the Proverbs and name it and claim it. God says this, it will. I mean, Proverbs are general truths. For example, in chapter 10, verse 27, it says, if you live a good life, a holy life, a God-honoring life, you will live a long life. I don't know about you, but I know know some young people who I would consider class A godly people who died young. You're like, wait a minute. Again, because remember, proverbs are a general truth, not a divine promise. So the verse that says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is a proverb. And I hear a lot of people claim that. I've trained my child up, and because I've trained him up, when they and, but now wait a minute, he's rebelling. She's rebelling. Well, generally it's true if you parent well <laughs> and you train them well towards the Lord, when they are old, they will honor that truth. But it's not a guaranteed thing. That's very important about Proverbs. So as we read these, you want to apply them, but know that they're not guaranteed. Now, you'll notice there in verse 1, um, these are the Proverbs of Solomon, David's son. So right out of the gates, we see who wrote it. It's Solomon. It is David's son. David was the king of Israel, kind of the most well-known, prestigious king. David is the king that is said that when he will, his, his reign, his rule will go on forever. Meaning in his lineage, in his family, we are going to have the Messiah, talked about in the Old Testament, who we know is Jesus, who's going to save all of humanity. So Solomon is his son. Now, Solomon is an interesting character. Solomon experienced a lot of life. It says in the scriptures that Solomon walked in the footsteps of his father. As he's beginning to lead the nation of Israel, he's a ruler, he's a king, and God shows up to him in a vision. And as God shows up to him, he says, okay, Solomon, I'll give you anything. Kind of the genie in the lamp scenario, right? But he doesn't get three wishes. He only gets one. I'll give you anything. Now, what would you say? Uh, Let's see. I'll take that vacation home in the Outer Banks. Or you know what? (laughs) I'll take, I mean, what would you say? You know, I'd like to lose uh, 25 pounds. I mean, wh- wh- anything. Solomon says, you know what? I want wisdom. I want wisdom. Now, God is honored with this. And God says, you know what? Because you asked for it, I'm actually going to give you wealth and all this other good stuff that you could have asked for too. But here's the key thing. He says to him, because you asked that, I will make you the wisest man that has lived to this point in history, and there will never be one after you wiser. Wow. Could you imagine that? Being told you're the wisest person in all of human history? Now, not only people began to notice this, too, because as he's growing in stature, people from all over the known world, it says in 1 Kings, start traveling to the nation of Israel to hear Solomon teach. So that's who's writing, incredibly wise, said to be the wisest man of all of human history. So that's who's kind of going to kick these around. Now, look at what he says. Here's the purpose. Verse 2, the purpose. This is one of the few books of the Bible that clearly spells out why it's written. I mean, it is crystal clear. Their purpose is to teach people wisdom and discipline, a word that we don't like so much, the first word's one we want. Uh, these two words are crucial throughout the whole... These two words are going to show up repeatedly. Wisdom and discipline. So I'm writing to give people wisdom and discipline. Wisdom is not just something you know. It's not just knowledge. Uh, wisdom actually, as you look at the... If you try and translate and understand what it is, it simply means skillful living. See, I find sometimes in our culture when we say, Boy, they're a really wise person. What we are sometimes saying is they really know a lot. Or they have good recall of what they've read. Now, wise people are people that live well. So if you call someone wise, you're looking at them and say they make good decisions. They live well. Their life is well lived. That's a wise person. Discipline, discipline is an interesting word here. It means to correct course and to give order. That kind of makes sense. So I'm going to have an ordered life. There's going to be structure, order, and it's going to something that's going to kind of keep bringing me back, keep correcting course. So that's two very key words. Now, there's another key word that shows up there in verse two. So their purpose is to teach people wisdom and discipline to help them understand the insights of the wise. And some of your translations say to give them understanding. So understanding is another key word. Understanding is another word. It's different than wisdom. And it's kind of the ability to see between two options and see clarity. Okay, so I could go this way, I could go this way, but I see clarity right down the middle. You can kind of navigate murky waters. Understanding is is great clarity and insight. People, you say they're very understanding. They have strong insight. Verse 3, their purpose, again, talking about the Proverbs, is to teach people to live disciplined and, look at this cool one, and successful lives. Yeah, you want, sex, you want a successful life? I want a successful life. So, again, we're going to work through this this summer. To help them do what is right, just, and fair. Another key theme throughout Proverbs, living well and justice. We're going to have a whole week just on justice because it shows up a lot in the book of Proverbs. Verse 4, these Proverbs, look at this, there's hope for some of us in this room. These Proverbs will give insight to the simple I am one. I've I've been very honest about this. I've struggled in school. Academics was not my cup of tea. Um, I I had teachers that didn't know if I was ever going to make it. Uh, I had this special RV that showed up at our school that I had to go out to because I had all kinds of... Today, I think I'd... Man, anyway, I'd be diagnosed with all kinds of stuff I think today that they didn't understand back in the early 80s. Uh, But the reality is I struggled. Um, I don't know where my IQ is, but I'm probably not on the upper end of genius. Uh, So I would consider I'm fairly simple. So I love this. These proverbs will give insight to the simple. I love it. So if you're here this morning, say, I just am not that smart. I'm not book smart. Guess what? There's hope. This is for you. It goes on knowledge and discernment to the young. Those of you who haven't lived a lot of life yet. There's some of you in this room that have lived a lot of life. Others of you are are in the beginning, end of life. And it says, listen, I want to write to give you how to live. Verse 5, let the wise listen to these proverbs. So maybe you're you're in the upper end of you you got life down, but you're still learning to be had. Let those with understanding receive guidance. So you may already kind of have a lot of understanding, but get more. Verse 6, you're going to get this all by exploring the meaning in these proverbs and parables. The words of the wise and their riddles. Now, verse 7 is the verse we're going to spend camp out on the whole rest of this message because it is crucial to getting through the book of Proverbs. Well, it says this fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Fear of the Lord. Chapter nine, verse 10 says it this way. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy one results in good judgment. So you want this wisdom. You want to get Proverbs down and live them well. It starts with fear of the Lord. So when I ask this question, what does that mean? Okay, so if I got to fear of the Lord, what does that mean? If you, if you have grown up in a church at all, you probably have heard a message or two in fear of the Lord, and you probably still may have a few questions. of What does it really mean? If you've not grown up in a church at all, welcome. And you're probably still like, what does that, does that mean? I'm like, got to be afraid of God. What does that mean? Well, let's talk about it. Let's start with that afraid piece. At some level, When you talk about what is the fear of the Lord, I would answer yes. At some level, there is afraid in that answer. When you study and read throughout the entire Bible, when you engage with people who come before God, you often see people who shake in their shoes or sandals, who drop flat on the ground, who have unbelievable dread and terror just wash over them. You have people, you see people who beg God not to show up because they're so afraid of what might show up in their presence. You see it over and over. It's kind of like if you drop me out in, a, in an African safari and there's a big African male um, lion and it's me and him, I am going to have a lot of fear because he has significant power to do great damage in my life. At some level that's there. Let me, let me kind of give you an illustration I remember when I began to date, the car date, you know, where I could actually go pick a girl up, and I was allowed to do that and go out. I remember I went to pick this girl up one time, and, and I go into the living room, and I meet mom and dad. And we're kind of interchanging, kind of pleasantries, and they're kind of talking about what we're going to do in the night, and we're introducing ourselves. And, and as we're walking down this kind of narrow foyer to head out the door, the dad says, hey, honey, why don't you just keep going, and I want to talk to Adam. So she continues to walk and then he reaches and just grabs my arm and squeezes in tight. And he says to me, he looks at me square in the eyes with his tight grip. And he says, listen, I want you to know I have a gun and I will use it. Now you have a gun and you will use it. Is he joking or is he serious? I mean, I couldn't, he did not alter his face at all. He just said that to me. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness. He He says, listen, if you touch her. Or hurt her, I will use that weapon. Now, you know what I did not do that entire night? I didn't lay I didn't I wasn't even tempted to touch her. I had fear inside of me. I'm like, no way. But what I have found, what I have found even, and just carry that illustration further, what I have found is I'll hear is I, at times, I'll, you'll hear me saying, I just can't say no. Maybe it's a desire to have some ice cream or maybe for some it's, it's a pornography struggle. I can't say no. I get these, whole, I mean, are you kidding me? Be a virgin? There's no way. Do you, Adam, would you live in the world that we live in? How do you do that? I got all these desires running inside of me and I just can't say no. Well, you know What? Remember when I was dating that girl, there were times we'd get behind a closed door and, and the desires are beginning to come in to me. And I'm like, I can't say no. Well, then the door would open up and in would walk dad. Do you know what happened to the desires? They stopped instantly. Gone. Didn't even think about it anymore. One of my great concerns in the Christian world today, the reason we may struggle to say no to sin is because God has no weight in our hearts or lives. He's not pressing in with the weight that he was designed to press in with. We come before him and we don't shake. We don't say, wow, look at who God is. Like that, he could take my life. He gave me the life that I have and he could take it instantly. We don't understand his bigness and his majesty and his greatness. So at some level, when we talk about the fear of the Lord, at some level, it starts with holy dread, terror. Now, I want to say this. If you're in this room and you're not a believer in Jesus, you're not a Christian, you're not a Christ follower, you've never put your faith in Jesus, that is all you should know of the fear of God. John chapter 3 verse 36 says, God is, loves us. He sent Jesus to die for us, but the wrath of God, it says in John chapter 3, remains on the head of the person who does not trust and believe in Jesus. All oh, you're going to feel and experience so it starts there. Now, it doesn't end there, and it's much deeper than that. So that's why we want to go further with this. Let me carry the story of that dating relationship. Did I eventually touch her? Yeah. Why? Why? Well, as I think about it, I think back. I didn't respect him at all. Matter of fact, his daughter didn't respect him. Couldn't stand him. So I had no respect. So at some level, the fear of God, there's this respect and this submission and this reverence that comes with it. But more than that, I want to go even deeper. Do you know why ultimately I didn't honor his word? It's because I saw something I wanted and I thought, I want that. That's what I need. I was making decisions for my satisfaction. If I have that, I will be happy. I will be complete. I will be whole. I will be good. He doesn't know what he's talking about. So at some level, the fear of the Lord gets into where do we find satisfaction in life? Where do we find significance? Where do we find worth and value? And I thought, man, if I am really a man, I will have that. Forget this. So let me unpack that a little bit with us. Romans chapter 1 says it this way. They, talking about people who, who know that God exists, they traded the truth about God for a lie. They traded Catch this trade. There's an exchange that takes place. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Earlier in the chapter, it talks about when you come into creation and you look out at the world, even if you're an atheist and you see what God does, there's going to be a piece inside of you that says there is a God. And you you stand at the shore this summer and feel the waves crash and you you feel the power of the ocean. And that creation points to a magnificent, holy, all-powerful, all-creator God. And we know, and it says, when we stand before him one day, we will be without excuse. Because inside of us, we're wired to know this reality. But as we go on with life and the creator, God, is saying to us, I satisfy you, I complete you, I make you whole. Come to me to find life. Come to me to find that life in all spheres of life. Let my weight push in on you. What ends up happening, we say, you know what? God, I hear that. I hear you saying that, (laughs) but I want that. That there will satisfy me. And we exchange, we trade the creator for the created, and we run after it. John Calvin, a guy in church history, some of you may know him, some of you may not, someone maybe you could be acquainted with. Uh, he lived many years ago. John Calvin said this the human heart, and this is his phrase, is an idol factory. Our heart has a propensity to run towards things outside of our Creator, to find life and significance and value and worth. Likely, likely, an idol stands behind your loftiest dreams, your scariest nightmare, and your unyielding emotions. Likely, that's true. St. Augustine, another guy in church history, said it this way. Said things like worry, fear, sadness, and deep depression, this is what his words, are smoke from the fires rising from the altars of our idolatry. The deep emotions that you experience, worry, fear, sadness, deep depression, it's like smoke coming up from that which you worship. It's not God. Now, what ends up happening with us, we are created. We are created to find life in our creator, to be satisfied, complete, and whole in him. End of story. But what ends up happening, we start to live life in this broken, sinful world, and we feel this emptiness inside of us. So we go to complete ourselves, and we think, oh, I'm still empty. So we begin to go to God. Instead of coming to him, we begin to go to him to get what we want. James chapter 4 describes this. Maybe read it this week. It comes out of the gates and says, you know, There's all kinds of fights between you. you know where they come from? It says, You guys got desires inside of you that are not good. You want things. You need things, quote unquote. And God says, You know why you don't have them? Because you don't ask me. And you know, the problem is when you do ask me, you're using me. You don't want me, you want the thing that I can give you. And he goes on to write and he says, you adulterous people. One of the scariest phrases in the scriptures. Now, when you think about adultery, what is adultery? That's what God is saying. You adulterous people. You're chasing after this thing instead of me. When you think about adultery, an adulterer finds in another the intimacy that they should find in their spouse. So God's saying, I am here to be intimate with you. Come and connect with me. Come and get life for me. But instead of doing that, you're using me to get life in something else. And it's not going to be life. It's actually going to be death. So we come to God demanding the things that will give us happiness, security, and contentment. And all we're doing is using him. Now, this may sound innocent because oftentimes those things that we want are so good, truly good, and holy even. Marriage. My greatest struggle with marriage has been in this, in this arena. And maybe you say, well, boy, I have to be married. If I'm not married, I will be miserable. I will be not complete. I have to be married. God, give me a spouse. Give me a husband. Give me a wife. Maybe it's children. Can you talk to people who can't have children? There's deep pain and a longing and a sadness. And at times that pain shifts to God. I have to have kids. Give me kids. And it shifts to this living and I need kids. Maybe it's God, heal me. Heal me. It's not fair, God, heal me. God, I have to have that job. I have to have that house. I have to have that car. I have to have, and and the word need shows up in our language all over the place. I need. In other words, we're saying if I don't get, I won't be complete. I won't be whole. I won't have worth. I won't have value. I need this. And God says, you adulterous people, you're looking for the intimacy that only I can give you, and you're finding it in someone else. The fear of God. I think too often, I do, we do, too often, we give a weightiness that we should be giving to God to someone someone or something else. I mean, do you really know that God made you for himself, for his glory, and that you will remain restless and incomplete and not whole until you figure that out and come to him? What I've discovered too in my life is idols produce a significant amount of anxiety and fear. Because what ends up happening, we ultimately demonize that which we idolize. We put our hope here and then it lets us down and we just whoo, come at it. You know, so like if it's taken from us, in other words, there's like this great fear. If I, in other words, the economy might crash. And I might lose my retirement. There's this deep fear because I'm looking for my security and my completeness in something outside of God. Or or I might never get married. Or maybe I am married and your fear is I might get divorced. there's this deep fear of losing or not having what you believe you must have for life. Or my kids might rebel. Well, they might. But why does that strike such fear and anxiety? or my business might fail, or my loved one might get cancer, or I might get cancer, or I might die, or they might die. And, and oftentimes, idols, when the weight is not on God, and we put it on something else, incredible anxiety and fear comes up, and insecurity comes up in our heart and our life. Now, see, here's the cool thing. Jesus steps in, and he says, listen, you have been created to have all this. You're trying to find life over You've been created to find it in God. But when we turn towards God, we're sinners. We understand his, he's big, he's huge, he's holy. What do I do? So God says, listen, I'm going to send my son. He's going to die for you. Put your trust in him and he will pay. That payment, when God looks down and we trust in Jesus, God says, good, holy. And now I can walk towards Jesus and I can find that intimacy that I can't have without it. And then verses like this, if you're ever going to talk about the fear of God, you must wrestle with this verse. You have to. 1 John chapter 4, it's in the context of 1 John chapter 3 that says this talks about Jesus coming to die. 1 John chapter 4 says this is love, not that that we loved him, but that he loved us. It describes this magnificent picture of Jesus coming. And it builds to this crescendo where it says such love has no fear. You say, no, wait a minute. We're supposed to fear God. Well, catch the context and the significance and the meaning of fear in this verse. It's going to give it to you. Such love has no fear because perfect love, which Jesus gives us, perfect love expels, gets rid of. I mean, just cast it out, all fear. If we are afraid, so there's that fear word again. It is not for fear. It it is for fear of punishment, condemnation. So if I have fear, when I come before God, all I sense is dread and say, listen, it's about punishment and condemnation. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. Beautiful verse. And when I think about this verse, I think about, you know what? God's love is perfect in its intimacy. When I'm trying to find intimacy in someone, another relationship out here, God's saying, no, 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 no. Find it in me. God's love is perfect in its ability, in his ability to satisfy. When I'm trying to find satisfaction out here, God's saying, no, no, no. Come to me. Come to Jesus. When I'm trying to control my world, which, which when we have idols, we do. We try and control everything. God says, you know, my perfect love controls all things. You can rest in me. No idol can give you all of that. No idol can come through on its promise to you. Rest in his perfect love. I love, this is why I love the way J.D. Greer, who, uh, if, you're, if you've read this book, Gospel, you've, some of these thoughts are kind of woven in this chapter. Our, our staff has read this book and we're working through it. Um, but J.D. Greer, a pastor in North Carolina, Raleigh Durham, and, and has multiple campuses, he says, Fear of God is all combined with intimacy. I love that definition. It's that holy dread, that holy, wow, look at who God is, but yet I can be so close. So if, you're, if your definition of fear of God falls heavy to one or the other, I push in and say, wrestle with that. Ask why. It should be this intermingling of this, whoa, and wow, he loves me. Do you understand the power of God? Do you get it? That's the all. Do you sit in amazement and surrender control to him? That's the all. In fact, I want to push in really hard on this one. Proverbs 8.13 says, all who fear the Lord will hate evil. Therefore, I, talking about God, I hate pride and arrogance. And some other things there, too, that he hates. Now, look at this next one. The Lord detests the proud. Let that set in. The Lord God detests the proud. In like James goes on, that, that adulterous passage I was talking about, the adulterous people, James goes on to say, if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. And he goes on to say, I stand opposed to the proud. I mean, that's why... Verse seven, fear of the Lord is the foundation because I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna live as though I'm the, I'm not gonna find all my significance and meaning in here. I gotta look out there t- to God to have it and I've gotta surrender my life. Another, maybe here's another way to say it. Um, living with respect, awe and submission is the foundation of a life of wisdom. I can get that down. I'm gonna work through Proverbs and I'm gonna live well as I grab some of these principles. The other thing I love too is this principle of where it says fear of the Lord is the beginning. We are called, before we're called to do something, before you're called to live well, you're called to sit with something. Sit in wonder and amazement of who God is. And it can only again happen through Jesus. Now, here's where I want to end. How do I know if I fear God? How do I know? Okay, so it's easy to talk about this. It's easy to talk about this, but how do I know? Here's what I have learned and here's what I am currently. This is such, I wish I could express you the deep places this comes from in my current journey right now. But the greatest test of whether I fear God might be, am I able to be joyful in all things? Gratitude is the word. Are you a grateful person? If the answer is no, when you look in at your heart and life or ask your friends around you to, to answer that for you, you might struggle with the fear of God. Gratefulness, in my opinion, is the leading quality for a person who trusts God. Why? Here's why I say that. See if you can f- how I think on this. When I begin to live life as a grateful person, I understand that I am owed nothing. Matter of fact, maybe you've heard the statement, gratitude begins where entitlement ends. Or maybe I could say it this way. If God never gives me one more thing, I still owe him everything. I still owe him my entire life. So I think when I begin to just look at my life is it is a gift. And all that I have is a gift. Then what I'm really doing and saying in that moment is I trust the giver, not the gift. I trust him who's given to me and I'm living for him, not for this stuff. I don't need this stuff. I, the word need just kind of begins to evaporate from my life. You don't hear it as much. I mean, am I focused on the gift or the giver? Henry and another guy, kind of well-known individual in, in human and uh, Christian history and writing. He says this, we are only grateful people when we can say thank you to all that has brought us to the present moment. As long as we keep dividing our lives between events and people we would like to remember and those we would rather forget, we cannot claim the fullness of our beings as a gift of God to be grateful for. Let's not be afraid to look at everything that has brought us to where we are now and trust that we will soon see in it the guiding hand of a loving God. All of your life. Can you look at it and say thank you God, I'm grateful for the life that you've given me. Now, this is something that's so deeply challenged me recently. And a couple months ago, I began, um, here's how I, you say, well, how do I get gratitude? What if I'm not? Well, I think there's a couple things. If you look at Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, maybe read it this week. Proverbs chapter 2, 1 to 5. Okay, here in chapter 7 and verse 9, we say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 2, it says wisdom is the it leads us to the fear of the Lord. So it's kind of the chicken or the egg. Which one comes first? Do we fear God and then get wisdom or do we practice wisdom and then fear God? It's interesting. Proverbs just jumped off the pages to me this week. So one of the things I think the Proverbs, that the, the wisest man on earth understands, is sometimes practicing gratitude and practicing the character trait will lead us back towards fear of God. So you say, well, I'm not a grateful person. We'll practice gratitude. So what I started, I was challenged with this a number of months ago. So in my journal, here's what I do. Every single journal entry, I write the word thank you is the first thing I write. And then I write a colon, and then I say thank you for something. I really, and sometimes it's, silly stuff like my tablet. God, it's really cool. I got this cool tablet to read my, read on. Or God, thank you for the birds I hear singing outside. Or thank you for the weather. Or God, thank you for my wife. Thank you for my kids. Thank you for the elders that are at the church. I always am trying to say things that are reminding me that life and what I have in life is not a result of my hands and my work and who I am, but it's a gift that's been given to me. Not a gift that I deserve, but a gift that's been lavished on me by grace. And I've even learned to start writing based on this quote. I've even learned to start writing, thank you for the difficult time that I had yesterday because of what I'm learning about you right now in life. Again, I think, I think, I hope the people in my life are beginning to see a person that's more grateful. Here's what I want to end with. I just want to push in hard on this. So if it says the fear of the Lord is the foundation, the foundation, You're going to get through Proverbs well. Okay, so do I fear God? Well, are you grateful? But let me ask this way too. Are you addressing the idols of your heart? I'd push in on this. Start paying attention to your hopes, your dreams. What is it you dream about? What's behind that dream? Why do you dream about that? How about your worries? What do you worry about? Pay attention to that. How about your sacrifices? What are you sacrificing for? You say, well, I don't know. What are you spending your time and energy and thoughts and what's consuming you? What are you just laying it all on the altar for? How about your bitterness? We all struggle with it at some level. I've found behind most, a lot of bitterness stands an idol because something stepped in my way or something stopped me from getting what I wanted and I, and I want it and I have to have it. I deserve it. You owe it to me. And I'm going to make you pay now because you took it from me. So again, your bitterness, who are you bitter at? Why are you bitter? Is it life or is it people? I mean, how about what makes you significant? If you lost your job tomorrow, what would happen to you? If you lost your marriage tomorrow, your kids tomorrow, what makes you significant? What triggers depression? Where do you turn for comfort and why do you turn there? Do you come home at the end of a long day, a really hard day, and you want to do nothing more but check out and turn on the TV? Or in my case, play Candy Crush. I mean, what is it that you're turning to? Why do you turn there? Is it food? Is it a a substance? Is it a drug? Is it sex? Is it what? where are you turning? Why do you turn there? Pay attention to that stuff. Pay attention to can you see God and his beauty? And let me challenge on this one. If you say, Adam, I can't. I can't. You know what's some of the reasons why we can't? Because it's not up to you. It's not up to me. It's work of God to open a person's heart and mind to see the beauty of who he is. So, how often do you pray, God, open my heart to see you, to understand you? God, remove the things in my life that, that are keeping me from seeing you. That's it's his work in that regard. Are you chasing after him as your source of life, your very worth and your value? Is that what you're going after? Or is it this other stuff? Are you, do you want the giver or do you want the gift? Because again, let me read it again. Proverbs 1 verse 7, fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge. But fools, and we're going to talk about next week, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. So that's the question. If you want to do life well, do you fear God? God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, I think without Jesus, anyone in this room, we, all as we know of God is holy dread and terror. We know your wrath, which is very real. Hell is a real place. Because you're a holy God. You're mind-blowingly big. But God, when we have Jesus, thank you, thank you. You get rid of that condemnation. You get rid of that punishment. And you bring us into relationships. And now we have this all intermixed with intimacy. God, help me to be a pastor, a person, a child of God, a dad, a husband who fears God, who fears you. God, I pray for this church for this church to be a place that we are known as a church that is passionate about proclaiming your greatness and your bigness and your glory and just who you are. May we live it out in all of our hearts and lives and all of our messages and songs and life groups and the care that we give and, and just our walking throughout life in our careers and our jobs. God, we just thank you for who you are. May we be grateful people. God, I pray right now for any person in this room, God, who walked in here uncertain of their relationship with you. God, would they know right now that all it is, is an admission of I'm a sinner. Jesus has paid the price. And God, would they put their trust, their faith, their hope in you. And thank you for who you are. Help us to run from our idols. Help us to see them, to name them, to get rid of them, and turn to you and not exchange the gift and the giver. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.